And I saw it, like I even spoke to people who were immigration lawyers and they'd been immigration lawyers for years and years and years. And they were saying, I don't know, I can't tell you all the different rules and functionings of the immigration system because it's so complicated, it's so changing all the time. And you do sort of have bad legislation, bad legislation. But the results of that for a lot of people are waiting for incredibly long times to even just hear the smallest out about, about their case. And those waiting periods are, are full of anxiety and full of stress because people have lives here. And one of the most perverse things that I think about this whole immigration debate is this idea. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. This week is 10 years since the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, explicitly announced a hostile environment policy in Britain. We now know that this policy resulted in the Windrush scandal and made life extremely difficult for migrants. And as such, we must reflect on its legacy and the history that made it possible. So to give us analysis into this decade of hostility, I'm really pleased to be joined by the academic commentator and author of the hostile environment, how immigrants became scapegoats, Maya Goodfellow. So Maya, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you on. Your book is a really fascinating read and it starts with an honest conversation. So let's begin with something fundamental. What is it in Britain's logic and histories that drives the British government to design an explicitly hostile policy that results in the deportation of its own citizens? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And um, I mean, this is obviously a really, it's really important to mark this week, but also recognize those policies are still very much with us and still very much impacting people's lives. So I think it's really important to have discussions like these to think about exactly what it is those policies are doing. And I suppose you can go from a starting point of the fact that any border, I mean, I can't imagine and understand a border that doesn't sort of discriminate. And so what I was sort of concerned with in the book was how Britain's history of bordering mm-hmm. led to this specific kind of discrimination and sp- how really how racism was is bound up with a lot of um, British immigration law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, we have to look at the history of Britain's um discussion around immigration, you know, the rhetoric around immigration, but also the legislation that existed around leg- around immigration. And you can go really far back and sort of look at the early 1900s. I mean, you can go even further back than that. But if we think about contemporary immigration law, mm-hmm. you can look at the early 1900s and you look at the laws that were introduced that were really anti-Semitic in nature about making it more difficult for Jewish people to come to Britain, making it more difficult for poor people to come to Britain. And you can sort of fast forward to the 1960s and what you see from the 1960s onwards is a set, a set different pieces of legislation that are designed to make it more difficult for people who are what we might now call people of color, black and brown people, predominantly from colonies and former colonies, mm-hmm. making it more difficult for them to come here. And so really the way that I understand how it is possible for this hostility in the contemporary moment to exist, despite it being distinct in certain ways that we need to understand and think about, is that this history of legislation makes that possible. And the really important thing there, I think there's two very important points to sort of think about. One is that 
the reason these laws had to be introduced was because Britain had an empire mm. and people from all over the empire were as part of the empire, as part of this idea of um, Britain having an empire and then Brit the British Commonwealth was that people had the right to move. Mm. And so these, these laws were introduced specifically to address that, to make it more difficult in all kinds of sort of like really covert ways to make it so that people who were not white would find it much harder to come here and settle here. Um, but the other thing about this is that it was both Labour and Conservative governments that introduced these laws, right? So we do need to think about the past 10 years. We do need to focus on that, but we need to also think about it wasn't just the coalition and Conservative government that got us, governments that got us to this point. It's a much longer history in which different political parties have been implicated in producing very exclusionary, very racist immigration legislation. Okay, so so given these histories that you you narrate, wasn't it reasonably foreseeable and and avoidable to to end up with a situation where you're essentially targeting your own nationals merely because of their of where they came from and historically they they were British citizens. Yeah, I mean, in relation to the the so-called Windrush scandal, is is that. I mean, the government was warned about this. Mm. We know they were warned by heads of governments from uh, uh, different countries. We know that they were warned by um, people within Britain about the impacts of this. And really, it took um, the reporting from, like, predominantly from the Guardian, the Guardian's Amelia Gentleman, to sort of expose what a lot of people already knew to be happening. And so, I think there's uh, this sort of this. Again, two ways, two two important things to say about this is mm -hmm. they knew that people who had come here, quote unquote, legally as as uh, in this um, sort of historic system that I talked about, they knew that they may be caught up in this system because it's so it's so onerous to have to prove that you have legally been residing in Britain for all these years, which is a significant part of the problem. But there's another part to it, which is that they even though we had the Windrush scandal, mm. they have kept in place most of those policies. I mean, there's been some fierce resistance and some successes to, uh, to to what the hostile environment does, but they've kept in place most of those policies. And so that means that during a global health crisis, the pandemic, some people have been too scared to go to their doctor, too scared to go to their GP, uh, their local hospital, for fear of being caught up in this hostile environment. And so whilst... It is absolutely outrageous and hor horrendous that people who've been in Britain for decades have been caught up in all of this. And still many, you know, some died before justice was sort of, um, uh, before seeing any kind of justice. Some are still waiting on compensation. That is horrendous. That is awful. We should recognise that. Mm -hmm. But we should also recognise that just because you're a, a so-called non-citizen, it does not mean you should be exposed to this system of hostility. It means that, you know, you are unable to access some very, very basic things you need to live. And that, I think, is indefensible, but it's still very much in place. Yeah, you you would have thought that, given the, the amount of injustice that exists, that they would try and atone for it by maybe even repealing those pieces of legislation. But um, as you say, that that hasn't happened. So you've looked in, in detail at, at the architecture of oppression that has been the hostile environment, which you've made visible in your book, and, and people should buy it, it's a really good read, is the really stark way in which migrants are scapegoated. Talk to us 
about how the hostile environment has been sewn into the fabric of most of Britain's institutions and how it continues to operate. So I think there's a sort of starting point that is very like a sort of base a basis on which this is all built, which is that there is an idea that certain people who come to Britain pose a problem to Britain, whether that is economically or culturally. There's this idea that certain people are a problem and need to be expelled. Right, that's sort of the basis for what the hostile for the hostile environment, and that is a very widely accepted view again across sort of the political spectrum that there are some people who are undesirable, and so building on that basis, which has been there for a very very long time, the coalition conservative governments essentially what they have done is that they have turned people who work in public and private institutions, whether that is people who work in universities like myself. Um, whether that is doctors, nurses, private landlords, they've turned these people into border guards. And the way that they've done that is they've said that you have to check people who legally have a right to be here if they want to access certain services. And so that basically means that some of the bordering functions um, that people like sort of associate with border guards or with people you know standing at the border, checking people's documents, like going through the airport, you will see people doing that. I mean, there's a problem with that as well, but this sort of brings what the hostile environment did is this brought this further in to sort of every aspect of life. And so when we think about bordering, it isn't just the airport, it isn't just crossing the channel or crossing a land border. The bordering is all around us. This is being done all the time. And all of us, or many of us are implicated in that. And that is, you know, the hostile environment, the role of the hostile environment was to uh, deepen that further, to make that even more ubiquitous in sort of in public life, which, as I've said, and as we know, unfortunately, from the uh, Windrush scandal and from other reporting um, and from campaigners, it means that for some people they can't, they cannot access some very, very basic things that we all need to just to, just to live, not even to have a decent life, just to to live. In the first place. So, uh, if if I understand you well, you're you're suggesting that amongst the political class, the people who govern this country, there is consensus that there are some people who are undesirable, who they don't want to come here at all, as if there's some algorithm system that sorts people out on the basis of particular qualities, and they'll by all means try and make sure that they, those people don't come here. Why? Yeah, I mean, this this shifts at different times, like who's seen to be undesirable and who is constructed as undesirable. But, you know, the, the function of a border is to to sort people. Like that is one of the functions of what bordering does, is it, is it, is it does discriminate. It decides who is able to be admitted and who is not. And how that looks at different times uh, and under different governments and from different politicians' perspectives is different. And so one example of this is under the new Labour government is sort of widely believed that new labor were, like, were welcoming and like changed the immigration system to be welcoming to people who were going to come and work in the labor market. And there, that is true to an extent. There were significant changes that were introduced under new labor, but the, there were two things going on under new labor, which sort of tell us a bit about that, this this uh, desirable and undesirable people, I think. One is that the, the immigration system that there was for people who were coming to work in the labor market was very changing very hard to map it's very hard to make sense of but visas would change and so you may you may come there are instances of some people coming to britain 
and sort of the visa system changing around them such that they can't they can't stay longer than a year because they're no longer seen to be economically useful to Britain. Um, and then they have to leave before they have even recouped the money that they spent coming here in the first place. So there's that sort of part of it. So even within this supposedly open system, there are divisions and there's a sort of sorting going on. But the other part of that is that almost immediately from when they came into office, New Labour were intensely, intensely anti-asylum. And so they their rhetoric around asylum was incredibly toxic, but they also introduced a lot of laws that are still with us today, things like making it so that people don't have the right to work when they're waiting on the asylum claim. And so that's another kind of sort of sorting of seeing who is undesirable. And they sort of argue that the reason that those laws needed to be introduced was because more and more people were coming to claim asylum, in particular from from um, the so-called global south. And many of those people were posing as refugees, were not actually legit, so-called legitimate. And I mean, we just know that that is, is an, A, not the case, is actually people were coming, more people were coming perhaps from different parts of the world because it was more possible because of uh, cheaper airfare. But that doesn't mean they, they were not supposedly genuine. But the other question I often think is, even if, if there was any truth to that, which none of the data suggests that there is, um, even if there was any truth to it, what situation might people have to be in that they have to claim asylum and say that they need to claim asylum, even if it's supposedly not legitimate, which, like I say, I don't buy anyway, but even if that was true, what must be going on in their lives that they need to make that in claim in the first place? And what is wrong with the system or what is the system doing that means it's not possible for those people to come here for whatever reason they need to, whether it's to work or to be with family or, or whatever? And so that kind of sorting, yeah, it looks different at different times, but it is really part of sort of the British immigration system, I would argue. Hmm. So, so do you know what I find really interesting, Maya, is that this kind of rhetoric that you you talk about, where there's there's sort of this consensus, particularly when it comes to people who are seeking asylum in the country, um, most of those people actually become refugees. But there isn't sort of an an explanation about okay, they there's this all this rhetoric about no, too many asylum seekers are coming here, but over eighty five percent of those people in the end end up being granted refugee status. What is it? What is the disconnect there about a lack of explanation that oh these are actually people who have stayed here, who are starting a family here, who are living their lives and you know become become citizens. I mean, I think it's a really good question. And I think there's probably multiple answers. Uh, one, this sort of like a political usefulness of constantly being tough on asylum. And, you know, this sort of narrative about asylum has been building up for, has been built up for really two decades or more. And so there is a really, there's a, a sort of popular understanding or uh, understanding that is, is quite popular that people are pretending, people are coming to sort of take from the system. And like I say, that just is not like all the evidence that we have, all the people I've spoken to, all the uh, much more research that has been done, speaking to far more pe people is that most people come here and they have no clue what their system is like. Mm. Um, so this idea that people would come because they think Britain's like a soft touch. I mean, Britain's incredibly got a very harsh system, so that's not true anyway, but people don't know that. Um, but I think that as well as this sort of political usefulness of seeming um, of seeming tough, there is 
also this belief in like very misleading arguments. So one of the big things that said is that people come here to claim asylum, either so-called legitimately or so-called illegitimately. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously these are all terms that I would, like wouldn't accept, but this is the way it is talked about because of pull factors. So things like the benefit system, things like um, being able to stay here for a certain amount of time, and like all of the all of the evidence that exists and i think you've had my colleague lucy mayblin on the podcast yeah. she's talked about this many other people have talked about this is that that just isn't there's no evidence for this idea of pull factors it just simply isn't true and so what lucy mayblin sort of uh, looks at is that one of the reasons that the uh increasingly restrictive asylum laws were introduced was not because more people were coming who were sort of bogus, as the the language is, but it was that people who were coming from former colonies often, Mm. often people who were not white and so were racialized as a threat. And it's this desire to keep out people who were not seen as like the model or the sort of ideal refugee, but are seen as culturally, like again, in quotation marks, culturally threatening. And we really see that in 2015, right, with the so-called refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. People who were coming, the reasons why across Europe those arguments were so, um, we saw that hysteria was because the people who were coming were perceived to be or were Muslims and this very Islamophobic narrative that they then posed a threat to some kind of mythical European values or mythical British values. And so I think it is wrapped up in this kind of cultural racism um, that is quite widespread across Europe. That's really that's really interesting. Let's let's look at the pillars of of the hostile environment. So these internal borders were became very prominent in in public services. So in the NHS, people were were denied healthcare. Um, it's it's the notion that people couldn't get work anymore if you wanted to apply for for housing to rent a landlord needed to check that you had the correct paperwork um, even to open a bank account this was all this all became really 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 difficult when you look at it on the face of it it reads like a very insidious way of the state drawing borders between people and creating a culture of suspicion now you needed people who weren't trained as border guards to implement the system. How is it that not a lot of people challenged what they were being asked to do? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, very good question. And I think it's sort of, it can depend on the institutional setting. And so we, like, well, I suppose the first thing to say is there are people who challenge that. And so there are, there are really important campaigning groups that really try to make people in those professions aware of what this kind of work is. So one example of this is Docs Not Cops, who mm-hmm. train people who work in, in sort of campaign around people who work in healthcare that they should not be checking people's documentation. And when I spoke to people involved in Docs Not Cops, mm-hmm. one of the things they said to me is actually a lot of people aren't aware of what it is that they're like that this is bordering in this way. So if you think about something like the NHS, there is a lot of bureaucracy. And so this is just like one layer, one additional layer of bureaucracy that some people, this is how some people see it. But also not everyone, I, I would say that, you know, some people are for this, I suppose. Some people support this kind of bordering, but mm-hmm. a lot of people are 
already overwhelmed in the work that they do. So are not able to have the time and the space to think about the implications of everything that they're doing in these settings. And so I think part of this is, uh, is, is related to that. And I, but then I think there's also quite a, a top down, or there can be a kind of top down um, way that this is constructed. And there is people who can speak to this far better than I can, um, people involved in the um, the campaign around universities resisting border controls in terms of the hostile environment. But the way that it looks is that there is this, with universities, you have this very perverse system where, you know, they are then monitored also by the Home Office. And so it does require, I think, critical mass to push back against these things. Not everyone is aware, not everyone's willing to go out and do that. And so there are people organizing um, to try and change that. And some of that has been successful. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it seems like perhaps a mixture of sort of lack of awareness, some apathy and some maybe I suppose some people supporting this kind of uh, this yeah. kind of this kind of bordering. But I yeah, I think it's a good question. I don't I don't know, like I don't have a definitive answer about how yeah, yeah. how and why that is. Yeah, that's that's it's I mean it's an interesting view because I, I'm trying to imagine how this would function. You you sort of can see if you're a frontline worker, say in the NHS. Um, you being continually asked to racialize people in your in your functioning. So if cumulatively you're continuously asking people who look and have particular features to continuously provide some sort of document all of the time, at some point you would have thought, given this country's mm. colonial history, you'd think that someone might question that and there might be a critical mass that might build up. But... but well, to to what extent then does does race and class uh, play a role in the way that these disaster environment policies have been constructed? Yeah, I mean, hugely, as, as you've said, like there is there's so much evidence to show that that in before it's important to say that before the, the hostile environment policies were introduced, this, the government already knew this was the case from work conducted, I think, by organisations like JCWI, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, mm -hmm. that showed that these policies would be racially discriminatory because exactly as you said, there's people who are ra being racialized all the time who are being asked for their, more and more asked for their documents. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of embedded in the, in, the, um, in the architecture of it all. But I also think that race and class work can, can more broadly work in very clear, like, damaging but at times uh at times there's a subtlety to to it and so you know one of the things that the government has said with the new points-based immigration system which actually you know points-based immigration system we've heard that many times before it's mm. not entirely new um uh one of the things they've said is you know they don't want to discriminate depending on people's passports that sounds very egalitarian but actually they are discriminating against people all the time. Different countries have different visa requirements. We then we we there is arguments to be made that certain countries where people are racialized in a certain way is more difficult to come here, depending on how much money you have in your bank, uh, how much you're going to earn. Though that can impact whether you can move. And so it's very very it's very clearly classed in a, in the sense of dividing up the low skills from the high skills, but also in terms of income thresholds then you also do have this sort of racializing function of who is seen to be a threat, who is seen to sort of be waved through and be okay. And this is like often sort of 
it change it does change over time but it's often sort of packaged up as you know this assumption that some people are culturally similar to british people and like that's often code for like white well like countries that are assumed to be white right it's like a country like america which is obviously very diverse but it's thought that it's thought of as white in this particular way um like you sort of have this this changing system whereby for some people it can be easier but i would say that for most people borders are bad mm. right some people can buy their way through them but it's just like levels of uh sort of like the levels of damage that it can do i think changes depending on like your how you're racialized and your your, your, your class how much money you have yeah I, I think that's brought to light by um several reports by the the chief inspector of borders i i found this really f- I shouldn't say funny reading it, but, you know, it, it makes visible how the system works. So between 2004 and 2009, the, the chief inspector of borders finds out that the, the largest group of overstayers of visas um, in the country are Australians. But you at no point during that period ever find a charter flight that is just deporting Australians. So it's 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 really interesting how how this system clearly works, you know, in favor of some people and discriminates against others. But your your book has very searing examples of the human cost that's happened because of, because of these borders. Talk talk to us about some of the people who you met, Maya whilst you're writing this book and the things that they've had to endure and and their resilience. Um, yeah, I mean, the first and I suppose most important thing to say about everyone who I interviewed for the book is like, these are people who are, we predominantly talked about or or I predominantly write about rather their, their difficulties with the immigration status, but they are obviously so much more than their immigration mm. status and their struggles with the immigration system. But they all, I think everyone I spoke to was very clear about what needed to change as well. So the, it's like often can, people can be presented as sort of passive victims, but actually these were all people who were resisting in all kinds of different ways, um, even if if uh, in relation to their own case, but also more broadly, like ca- the campaigning work they would do. Um, and with everyone that I spoke to, there was basically one of the biggest things that they talked about was just how difficult this was to navigate like a difficult 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 system and mm. I saw it like I even spoke to people who were immigration lawyers and they'd been immigration lawyers for years and years and years and they were saying I don't know I can't tell you all the different rules and functionings of the immigration system because it's so complicated it's so changing all the time and you do sort of have bad legislation piled on top of bad legislation but the results of that for a lot of people are waiting for incredibly long times to even just hear the smallest out about about their case and those waiting periods are are full of anxiety and full of stress because people have lives here Mm. and one of the most perverse things that i think about this whole immigration debate is this idea that it's often said that people who come to britain are going to be like disruptive and there's going to be lack of community cohesion and all of that i i think is just a really racialized debate anyway but the most perverse thing to me about all of it is that the immigration system basically tears people away mm-hmm. from their communities or makes it really difficult for them to form long-lasting connections or be around the people they love and care about because they are being dispersed 
to different areas of the country if they're waiting on an asylum claim or they're being locked up in immigration detention or they're being deported. And so I think that for me was one of the things that really came out of speaking to people is just like it gets into almost every aspect of your life because you are, it's your, it is your life. And whether you're able to stay in this country is about, you know, it's about the children you have here. It's about your your friends. It's about your neighbours. It's about the people you're friends with at work. Um, or the all the work you do that you care about. Um, so I think that really was like one of the, the the clearest things. And then there's obviously the lack of legal aid. So having to navigate these systems often with either very bad legal advice or very little legal advice. There is the huge fees that mean that many people cannot even afford to sort of um, put in applications to stay here. Just it. I do you think because someone happened to be born in a different country, the kinds of distress and difficulty they are put in by the British state just because of where they happen to be born or what their job is is just is just grotesque. And um, yeah, there is so much important resistance that goes on to to try and change those systems. But it's also a lot of people who are doing that resisting also get burnt out because. The system, it seems, one activist said to me, you know, it sort of seems like is designed to break people down. And there was one person I spoke to, and I will never forget this, because it just does show how awful the whole, all of these immigration laws are, how awful bordering is. There was one person I spoke to who was trying to get immigration advice, mm-hmm. was had applied for asylum, uh, put in their asylum claim here, it'd been rejected. Um there was like sort of lots of complexity to what was going on with their case. And so eventually they just said, you know, actually I'm going to, I'm going to go back to my home country. I'm just, I don't want to do this anymore. And the home office had their passport and they couldn't get that. They couldn't get a response from the home office. They they, They were told by their lawyer to book their flight back home. Couldn't get a response from the home office to get their passport back. So we're just stuck in Britain. Like didn't want to be, weren't allowed to be here according to the British state weren't allowed to leave and that i think like obviously no one should have to leave no one should be deported but i think that also just shows how um difficult to navigate and like intentionally complex the whole of the immigration system is and just totally indefensible goodness so that that person is having to relive a limbo that they've been experiencing over over a long period of time um, I find it really remarkable that, that you talk about how even some lawyers who you spoke to don't don't get the complexity of the system and that the, the rules are so so onerous. Um, we've spoken, Maya, to, to a number of charities and they've told us that as, as a result of the hostile environment policy, unscrupulous employers have exploited people's vulnerability. Modern slavery is at record levels in Britain. And the trafficking of people has grown significantly. Why then have we not seen these immigration acts repealed, particularly those ones in 2014 and 16 when Theresa May was was prime minister? And at the time, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, she resigned over Windrush. The only change, it seems, is a really cosmetic one. The, The government have just renamed the hostile environment to the compliant policy. What does this tell us about this government's attitude and its its approach to the victims and survivors of the of the hostile environment? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the question almost answers itself. Mm. I, like, there, there is, I mean, there's been far too little change given everything that was said during the Windrush scandal, during, you know, a lot of politicians said that they were remorseful, but I think that, unfortunately, one thing that was said at the time and was not substantially at least not in this in sort of popular politics i know that it was by a lot of um campaigners and activists one thing that was said repeatedly was that these laws were needed to stop so-called illegal immigrants and so that is sort of at the crux of all of this i think the government is willing to sacrifice whoever if it's if it can say and if it can make life difficult for people that it, it deems to be illegal and I think that the one thing to say about this is that people are not illegal people are illegalized by laws mm-hmm. it's the, it, it really what is it what is the the cause um of people's lack of status is mm-hmm. the way that immigration laws function and strip them of that status and so when it comes to people who um, of victors and survivors, you know, the whole thing around uh, all the discourse around modern slavery is there's just a total lack of care. And if you think about, um, if you think about, I think one thing, one example I often think about is the, the, the people who died at Morecambe Bay, the China, people who were from China, mm-hmm. who were cockle pickers. Yeah. Um, it was sort of called the Chinese cockle pickers uh, case, but all those people who died, they drowned. Um, there was some laws introduced in relation to like gang masters regulation, but there was like almost no conversation about why it was that those people had to use these other routes to come into the country, why they felt like they had to, they needed to move in the first place, if they needed to move, why they couldn't come into the UK by other means. And I think we see this with the whole debate around so-called people smuggling is that um, there's like no question almost no question, at least from the government and like really not much from like party political opposition, not just the sum, but not loads Mm. of why it is that people have to turn to these other means of entry. And that is because it's so hard to get here in the first place. And so to me, that suggests the government are not, it seems to suggest that they are not particularly bothered about sort of the outcomes of the very policies that they implement. That's that's extraordinary. I mean, they they can see the t- toll of of human suffering that that this causes. I mean, I, I understand the the externalization of borders and this this visa regime that exists that that seems to you know pick and choose who they they really want to come here. But how do we reconcile Maya this this clearly institutionalized discrimination of of this hostile environment policy and the, this country's reliance on a lot of migrant labor. So you observe in your book, and, and this is fascinating, that whilst David Cameron at the time, when he was prime minister, was claiming to want to cut immigration numbers to the tens of thousands, over 100,000 people were coming into the country, in fact, at the time, to fill in labor shortages. So reconcile this for us. How, how, how do both these things function? Is this double speak? Yeah, it's um, it again. This is something that sort of changes, and in particular within the Conservative Party, there's a kind of there's a tension, or there appears to be a tension between the people who do want a very restrictive immigration regime. I mean, even more, it's already very restrictive, but even more restrictive. Um, 
and then sort of like the the business lobby if you like like the people like the cbi who want uh there to be cheap labor coming into so people can be who can be paid very little and there's this there is this sort of tension um that i think is caught in con- like sort of constantly in the process of being worked out but what you do see is that even when politicians have this very very harsh rhetoric sometimes that is matched by tightening the immigration system and making it more difficult for certain people to come in but they will at times make allowances so if you think about some like the season the, some of the things like seasonal worker visas mm-hmm. they will recognize they will say oh we do need people to come in and do this work and you know i think we'll really see this in relation to the the care sector yeah um so they do make some kind of allowances but often these are uh the terms of entry and the terms of being here are very poor and it's this thing that I mentioned about before, it means that people end up having to, like, end up being expelled from the country when they're not needed. And so, like, there's this desire to, if there are people who they want to admit for the purposes of the labour market, with some groups, there's this sort of desire to keep them temporary. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't agree with seeing human beings as just seeing them as economically useful i think there's a problem with just saying oh well people should be able to come here because they contribute to the economy i don't think that takes us particularly far in Mm -hmm. advocating for like seeing other people as human beings but i do think that there is a uh like there's there is a tension within like within the way that politicians talk about and see this which is the british labor market is also reliant on people from all around the world Mm. it just is I, I mean, I, we just look at the NHS. Yeah, I, I, I think people will find that as a quite a compelling argument that maybe perhaps that that's the overriding factor, that people are seen by the government as economic units. I mean, I think that this, like what will be, in, well, not interesting, I was struggle to find like an appropriate word. <laughs> Things like this, what will be, what I think we should all watch out for and be looking at is is, is what this this current conservative government sort of does on this because they also do have a desire to really make it difficult for people to get here and sort of like outsourced economy i think we should watch and see what sort of very keep an eagle eye on that to see exactly what happens if we think about their their points-based system and the rwanda policy and the way that they're talking about asylum um because they do still see people as sort of economic units but uh whether there's another way for them to sort of uh have that like kind of accumulation without people being here i think is one of the things to watch mm. but but is the danger with all of this maya that the the, the covid 19 pandemic brought to the fore um this notion which was visible to that migrants are do most of the frontline work so like in the in the frontline service industry in the nhs in the in the care sector do we face a danger that in the end there might this this abiding narrative that there are good and bad immigrants yeah totally and i think we saw that in the response to the immigration health surcharge so the which is i'm sure everyone is aware but mm. that people depending on their immigration status have to pay so they pay in like everyone else through their taxes to the nhs but they have to pay again this surcharge and there was campaigning to say it's perverse that you know doctors nurses porters care workers health and care workers are basically risking their lives mm. during the pandemic 
to care for people and are having to pay twice over for the service that they keep going. And so there was a successful campaign to stop that for health, certain health and care workers. But I think it that was a dividing the good from the, my work from the bad because even other frontline workers, like people who deliver takeaways or mm. the people who were stacking supermarket shelves or people who are cleaning um, like different places of work that still needed to be open, all of those people who may also have not been born in Britain mm. still have to pay or may still have to pay, depending on their immigration status, twice over for the NHS. And not only was that policy kept in place, that surcharge was increased. So it is now over £600 a year. And so that, for me, is a very clear encapsulation of like what the good, bad migrant framing does at a time when we were like at the height of the, like one of the, the lockdowns, at the height of the sort of, concern around the ongoing pandemic um we were being told common humanity was what mattered we knew that wasn't the case because of the differential health outcomes who was die who was more likely to die who was more likely to be protected mm-hmm. who was more likely to be having a party or whatever it is that's been going on at the moment <laughs> in the news um and get away with it uh but we were being told that our common humanity was what mattered. But in this very moment, there was a very stark and clear ongoing policy that divided people up mm. depending on what job they were doing that then shaped people's access to healthcare, which is like the thing that we were told we should all be able to access. So not only was a hostile environment in operation, you still had this immigration health surcharge, which still exists. So, mm. yeah, I think it's not just, you know, Sometimes, I mean, myself included, we can sort of get caught up with talking about the terminology of it all and like the stigmatizing language. Mm. And the reason to sort of think about that, I think, is that stigmatizing language, it tells us something about how the actual system is functioning materially. Yeah. And so in that instance, in this instance, dividing up the good from the bad tells us who has to pay and who has who doesn't, whose life is seen as more valuable and whose isn't. It all it all just seems very convenient, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you've you've talked there about how we we need to keep a close watch about this particular conservative government does. So what what it has done recently is it's passed this Nationality and Borders Act, and it's one of the most egregious acts. Which uh, campaigners for refugees, in particular, were calling the anti. A refugee bill. We we spoke on this podcast with um, with Enver Solomon, who who runs the Refugee Council. He thought that it was a flagrant breach of of international law. But now we know that some people will be sent to Rwanda. So people who 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 arrive on boats will now be criminalized. So this tension comes to the fore again. So the government will allow on one hand. Ukrainians to come because of the terrible war that's that's going on in Ukraine. But Syrians, Af- Afghan nationals, Sudanese people, Eritreans, who the Home Office this week are saying are the majority of people who are arriving on those boats, they face the prospect of being of being sent to Rwanda. How how do you reconcile all of this? particularly in light of, of Wendy Williams's report on, on its Lessons Learned review, where she said that the Home Office needs to take a stance where it's beginning to right wrongs. I mean, 
it just isn't happening. Like one of the other things that Wendy Williams said in that um, in in the report was that people who worked in the Home Office needed to understand Britain's colonial history. Mm. I mean, the best way for people to understand Britain's colonial history is obviously for people who are working in the Home Office and other like other parts of, of the civil service to be educated on it, but it would also be to make it a statutory part of the British curriculum. Yeah. It's not happening. Government don't want to do that. And so there's sort of that very clear thing of like, there were some specific things that Wendy Williams said mm. that just aren't being done. And I think the, I think it was like, I don't know if it was the same week or it was within weeks of one another. Priti Patel was standing up accepting Wendy Williams's report in the House of Commons saying, yes, we recognise, we are sorry, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then in another, uh, I don't know whether it was a debate or a statement, in that same exact same building, almost from the same, like the same dispatch box she was mm. at, um, was saying, oh, we need to stop channel crossings. And that just tells you that nothing, no, nothing has been, not, no lessons have been learned because that rhetoric around channel crossings has been whipped up um, again totally ignoring the reasons that people have to make these very dangerous journeys in the first place is that they have no other option and i think one thing like thinking about ukraine and thinking about the rwanda policy is that i think we should be under sort of no illusions that the government will necessarily treat or do what everything that they should and can for people coming from ukraine like there are things that they have done but we already can see that there's serious problems in the system so it's not that people coming from Ukraine are going to be automatically treated well, right? There are differences in that, you know, you can walk through St. Pancras and you will see a welcome room for people coming from Ukraine. Mm. Like I can't, I, I mean, I might be wrong, but I've, I've never seen that for anyone else. And so there is that, there is that distinction that they want to seem like they are doing, and they are doing some things, but they want to seem like they are acting. Mm. And the system is so broken and they, yeah, that there's major problems with it. But that is happening at the exact same time as you say that people who are crossing the channel from different from different different countries um, are now being threatened with being sent to Rwanda. And that sort of does tell us that there's a kind of ideal type refugee and uh, like this bad refugee, sort of that same dichotomy, but thinking about refugees. Um, and the fact that that still exists, the fact that they're whipping up this hysteria when Britain has so, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't matter anyway, because as soon as you get into the numbers, mm. you know, Stuart Hall, a cultural theorist, talked about as soon as you mention numbers, it's always too many, right? It's always too much when it's immigration or race. It's always too much. Mm. Um, but it is also true that Britain has such a small number of refugees. So this idea that Britain is can't take any more people in is just also not accurate um but that's what a lot of this is based on and one of the sort of central tropes in this whole discourse around channel crossings is that it is young men young men are the problem and this is because it's assumed that young men who are black and brown are lying and are culturally incompatible with britain and so this comes down to a very racist narrative that we saw again during the so-called refugee crisis in 2015 that certain groups of people um are more misogynistic than white british people or white british men which is obviously based in this kind of again this kind of cultural racism so this idea that certain people have a culture 
that is that is more toxic or incompatible with Britain. And so this is sort of um, based around the idea that women's rights in countries like Britain will be under threat from these people. And so although that isn't now said regularly and explicitly, that is what underlies this idea about young men being one of the, like, or it's one of the things that underlies this idea about young men being the people who you don't want to come to Britain. And this is just, it's an intensely racist narrative that is, uh, that gives cover to policies like the, the sending people to um, another country to have, to seek claim asylum there. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's, it's, it's very difficult to listen to and, and to try and to try and process like, we, we get a lot of feedback from a lot of our listeners who who despair at at what what's what's happening in Britain and a lot of them won't won't get the opportunity Maya to to speak to you directly and to try and get ideas about how you can get cultural and 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 system change what what would your advice be to a lot of people across the country who are trying to to work to dismantle this system? I mean, I don't think I should be giving advice. I would say, contact me and tell me what you're doing. What can I do? Because I think people are doing this kind of this kind of work. They are there are all kinds of resistance. You know, there's the, the successful campaign school this, uh, the uh, against the hostile environment in schools mm. that stopped that stopped that from happening. Yeah. Um, there are really important spaces where people get together and give like, you know, share advice, share, share ways to navigate the immigration system. And there is a like history of anti-racist protest and movement in Britain that mm-hmm. meant things like when the government, when successive governments were implementing virginity testing, it, predominantly um, against South, South Asian women who were coming from countries like India, there was a huge amount of protest from like largely led by um, women's groups, mm-hmm. black and brown women that put pressure on the government to stop that. And so that we can see in our history, these successful moments of resistance. And we see this kind of resistance is going on all the time. You know, people do even talk about the act of crossing a border illicitly as, a, as, a, as an act of resistance. And mm. so I think we should take heart in that there are people out there who are working to change this and who do also think it is a unacceptable state of affairs. Um, but I would say I'm, I mm. talk to other people and hear from other people about what their strategies are, because it's certainly not one person who's going to have the answers. You know, I've like, talked away for however long but that's like i'm one of like there's many many other people who are doing way more important work to challenge the immigration system and imagine a different world altogether and i think that 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 gives when i hear those people and speak to those people that is what gives me hope because we just know that it doesn't have to be like this and we know that there are people out there who think the same yeah and I, i think your contribution to to the debate uh, with this really amazing book that that you've written, which I, I I recommend very highly that that people read is is a very important marker in 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 the history of the, of this country. So, finally, Maya, how do you see the future of immigration 
policy in Britain because Britain has a really aging population and on the face of it, it's, it's straddling a very fine line. It has flashes of human empathy and solidarity as demonstrated by the response to, to, to accepting refugees from Ukraine in the way that it has. This, this empathy also sits alongside a far more enduring bureaucratic, discriminatory, institutional callousness. Um, where, 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 how do you see immigration policy in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that I've sort of taken quite a bleak tone. <laughs> um, and I mean, like, you know, it's necessarily so because the immigration system is, I'm sure, like many, many people who are listening will know far better than me, is mm. is callous, is, is cruel, um, does treat people as if they are not people. Um, and so I don't have high hopes for the way that politicians will respond and like politicians will try to legislate. I don't have a positive sort of um, view of the political class in this particular moment. It's not, there's no clear indication that they're going to be better or change immigration policy in any kind of significant and meaningful way. I'm very happy to be proved wrong on that, but it's not, that's not clear to me. But what I would say, just because I don't think despair is where we can stay or where I should stay, mm. um, is that things like uh, what happened at Kenmuir Street in Glasgow, the resistance to the immigration raid, there were com there's community solidarity. You know, this happened, year there was also years ago resistance to dawn raids um, on the state of Scotland where the community stopped people from being, people who were seeking asylum from being deported. And there were these really important sort of moments in, of of resistance that become sort of, public knowledge, but those things are happening all the time. And what I would say is that it's not necessarily clear that the UK's immigration system as it is, is tenable, is something that can continue. And just because it has been hostile for all this time, it does not mean that we have to imagine that it will always, that things will always look this way. And so I think um, working to change the existing system as many people are doing is really necessary work and is happening that even if you think about the response to the Rwanda policy, that has been significant. Um, there's been significant, already significant resistance. But at the same time as doing that, I think we have to sort of think of an even broader like, horizon about changing all of this altogether so that anyone can move, no matter who they are, but also so that anyone has the right to stay if they want to as well. And so for me, this is about saying, is not about whether you are classed as an asylum seeker, a refugee, a migrant, that should decide your worth and your right to move or whether you are low skilled or high skilled. Mm -hmm. Everyone, we must fight for the rights of everyone, no matter what their status is, no matter who they are. Um, and that is a right to move if you wish and stay too, if you wish. And that for me is sort of where I find some hope, I think. No, that's that's amazing on that, that point of resistance and rallying the troops. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Maya. Thanks so much. This stock conclusion that I took from Maya's forthright analysis is that the government knows its legislation is designed to treat particular people differently. It is a scandal that after Wendy Williams this is Windrush Lessons Learned review that Priti Patel 
came to Parliament and renounced and disavowed the treatment that people experienced, which left them traumatized and at times pauperized, and promised to right the wrongs. And yet, as we learned today from Maya, the laws that made the Windrush scandal possible are still law today. People lost their homes, their livelihoods, access to health and jobs. Some who were invited here to help build the NHS were deported. Others languished in detention centers. Some paid the ultimate price and lost their lives. People seeking asylum were denied legal aid. Those who tried to regularize their status faced ever higher fees for permanent residency. In 2020, the Home Office made a profit of £400 million, but still charged children who were born in this country up to £1,200 to get a passport. This decade of hostility, authored by Theresa May, has many victims and tens of thousands of survivors. And as David Lammy MP so succinctly put it when lamenting this government's rhetoric on immigration, if you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. So, as part of an effort to create awareness of what happens to some of your neighbors and friends who just happen to have been born in another country, share this episode and subscribe so you don't miss the next one. So, until the next episode of the Still We Arise podcast, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.